This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 380th episode, we have a really exciting paper slash very controversial paper about a potential two new species of Tyrannosaurus mm-hmm. to go it, along with Tyrannosaurus rex. It's been hotly debated. It has, to say the least. There's also new dinosaurs, including a new alvarosaur and a new hadrosaur. So we've got four new species in this episode. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's one way of it's looking at it. Quite an episode. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Anodontosaurus. And of course, I have a fun fact, which kind of builds on the Tyrannosaurus species discussion. But before we get into all of that, we want to first thank some of our patrons. And this week, we want to thank Dark Princess Whitney and A Lone Dingo, who both just joined. So thank you both very much for joining our community. We really appreciate it. And rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Vincentrosaurus, Misunderstood Overraptor, Remy Rodriguez, John Heck, Shane Kylosaurus, Chris, Colton, and Daniel McGill. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody, for being a part of our amazing dinosaur community. Before we get into the news, we have a bit of personal news of our own. Garrett and I, as a lot of our listeners know, we've been married. We had a dinosaur-themed wedding, and uh, we'll be hatching. Is that the right? I don't know if that's the right term for us since we're mammals, but we'll be having a baby coming this May. Yep. Yeah, the due date is in the middle of May, and if you know about pregnancies, human gestation time periods, to make it real nerdy, it's like plus or minus two weeks from the due date is considered normal. So basically any time in May, we might be off in a hospital with Sabrina giving birth. Yep. But don't worry. We've got you covered. We have been working double time the last few months and will be for the next couple months to make sure there are new episodes coming out throughout that whole time. Yeah. So yeah, like Sabrina said, double time for sure. And it worked out well with our survey too, because we asked part of the reason we were asking people what types of extra episodes they might be interested in was to figure out what to fill out this <laughs> couple month break that we're planning on taking. And so we've got mostly ones related to sort of general science topics, because that was the thing that most people said they were interested in, and general dinosaur science specifically. But we also have a whole bunch of interviews because people really like interviews too. So it'll be pretty similar to a normal episode, except that we'll be pre-recording it so we won't have news in those episodes. Mm -hmm. We might also be slower to respond than usual. Yeah, we'll definitely be slower to respond because we'll probably be like <laughs> running on no sleep <laughs> yeah, and all that. <laughs> but we're excited. I tried to think of a good dino pun, but I failed. 
Yeah, I got Sabrina maternity shirt that references those Pokemon Go egg incubators. It's got an egg on it and it says O, oh, <laughs> question mark, like it's about to hatch. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think hatching is the fun pun. We just saw that video too of a baby in a dinosaur costume and like a giant oversized egg. Oh yeah, crawling out of the egg. Yeah, so we might have to come up with a way to do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is our personal news. So if... And if, you know, something happens where Sabrina goes into labor really early, there might be a week that we miss or something, you know, just that's probably what's happening. Also, why our episodes have been a little bit less consistent on coming out because we're trying to do two a week in preparation and sometimes things get a little crazy. So there have been a lot of episodes coming out on Thursdays rather than Wednesdays lately. But we're trying to keep it back. We might be back on schedule for this one, hopefully. Yeah. So now... Jumping into the news, we're going to start with by far the most controversial paper of this year so far. We're only in March, though. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is paywalled. But weirdly, the new species described in this paper are based on two of the most famous dinosaur mounts in all of the U.S., maybe in the world. So you can see them in better detail by going to a museum than anything you can see in the paper. (laughs) Oh, okay. So once I describe what's going on in this paper, really, you you won't be missing much by not seeing the paper because it's the dinosaurs that it's talking about are very well known. And this paper was written by Gregory Paul and others and published in Evolutionary Biology. The authors proposed two new Tyrannosaurus species, and I do mean Tyrannosaurus, not just Tyrannosaur, mm-hmm. like how Gorgosaurus or Displetosaurus are Tyrannosaur species. This is an actual Tyrannosaurus species. It's like how Tyrannosaurus rex is a species. Exactly. So it's going to sit right in the genus with Tyrannosaurus rex. And the two proposed species are Regina and Imperator. So it would be Tyrannosaurus Regina, Tyrannosaurus rex, and Tyrannosaurus Imperator. So king, queen, emperor. Yes. So Regina is queen, Imperator means emperor, and rex is king. But everybody already knew rex. Mm -hmm. Quite the ruling dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) I actually think the names are super cool. If nothing else, I really appreciate the names that they chose for Mm -hmm. these dinosaurs. It's not the first time Gregory Paul has challenged the taxonomy of a very popular dinosaur or just in general written a very controversial paper. One of the most famous challenges was when he proposed combining Deinonychus anteropus as Velociraptor anteropus in 1988. And that was in a book which apparently Michael Crichton read and is often cited as the reason why the supersized velociraptors in Jurassic Park are called Velociraptor and not Deinonychus. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. Or maybe I did and I forgot. Yeah, we talked about it years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, basically the idea was that Deinonychus shouldn't have been its own genus and that since Velociraptor was named first, the Deinonychus species got lumped into Velociraptor. That was his idea at the time. It's pretty much been completely rejected by now. But like a lot of science, you know, no one bats a thousand. Yeah, things are always changing and they're meant to be always changing. Yeah. So for a quick background, I think we haven't talked about taxonomic ranks in a really long time, if ever. Do you remember the King Philip came over for great spaghetti? (laughs) I think that's how it goes. I don't think we ever had a mnemonic device for... Those sorts of things. Really? Okay. I don't know how you remembered them because every biology class, I think, had to memorize. You've got kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I think I just did the flashcard method. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
I liked that King Philip came over for a great spaghetti thing. Anyway. It must have been really good spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. For a well, king to come over. <laughs> so yeah, when I was a kid, I always imagined him coming across the Atlantic Ocean, but then I was like, they probably came up with this in England, and it's like, <laughs> just go down the road. But anyway, digression. So these are all taxonomic ranks. Kingdom is the highest one. Species is the lowest. But they can be expanded almost indefinitely. You can have things like subfamily and superfamily, for example, on either side of family. You can also go below species with subspecies. You can go above kingdom with domains. There's a million ways you can define these. Those are just the original ones that most people are familiar with. So, for example, with humans, we're in the animal kingdom, in the chordate phylum, in the mammalian class, in the primates order or primates order, and in the family hominid, the genus Homo, and the species sapiens. But when we talk about humans, we usually say the genus and species. We say Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. We don't just say H sapiens like with T Rex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we don't usually say Homo or sapien because it's just the way you do it. You usually say genus and species because of the binomial nomenclature that Linnaeus came up with all that time ago. With T Rex, they're in the same kingdom and phylum, animal and chordates. There's also vertebrates, are sort of a subset of chordates, which we share with dinosaurs. Class and order aren't specified for T-Rex. Instead, there is the clade Dinosauria, which is an unranked clade. Same thing with Saurischia beneath that and Theropoda within Saurischia, although those could change with Ornithoscolida. Right. I was just about to say. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that they're in these unranked clades because they change. It's really hard to figure out that middle piece when you're talking about extinct organisms because the more different new discoveries you have, the more you have to fill in that middle piece of where the branches and the family tree are. But at the more specific end, it's a little bit easier. So with T-Rex, the family is Tyrannosauridae, or Tyrannosauridae, and the genus is Tyrannosaurus, and the species is Rex. More about this on the fun fact. But the point is, Tyrannosaurus is to T-Rex as Homo is to humans. With living animals, Usually a species is the group of organisms that can reproduce and create fertile offspring. Hmm. That's sort of the most commonly used definition. There have been more recent proposals because there can be some problems with this. Again, more in the fun fact. But none of the best ways for defining a species work with non-avian dinosaurs. Because we can't see them reproduce. We can't see them reproduce. We can't test their DNA. We can't really observe them as they're alive or even see what they look like other than just their bones and in some cases a little bit of keratin or maybe a feather or two. Mm -hmm. With dinosaurs, we have to rely on what are called paleo species. You can also just call them extinct species. They're the same thing. A paleo species is basically just a species that's only known from fossils. And so you have to rely on differences in the skeleton. It's basically all you have to go by. There's another way to define species other than just differences in the skeleton, and that's when a spectrum of differences are found over time. And it's a really slow, gradual change, but we have a really good fossil record of that organism. And then we'll define these species based on what are called chronospecies. Hmm. One example is something like an ammonite, there are tons of ammonite fossils all over the place, and they really gradually change shape. So if you imagine, say, 100 million years of ammonite evolution and them just slowly, gradually changing shape for that full 100 million years, if you're looking at either end of it, they're clearly not 
that similar. They need to be different species. But where you draw the line in between is very arbitrary because we have such a good fossil record and you can see that slow transition. So basically what happens is you just pick some points where there seems to be a little bit more rapid change than there are at other periods. That's usually what happens with species. There'll be times where they're changing slowly and times that they're changing a little more quickly. So you draw these lines and you say anything before that line is one species or one chrono species and anything after it is a different one. Of course, this doesn't really apply to any dinosaurs. I was just going to say, because there have been some, you know, with some of the dinosaur the days that we've done where we say sometimes scientists think, oh, this was a direct ancestor of another one, mm -hmm. but that's so hard to prove. Yes. Yeah. The anagenesis, that's sort of a, a version of this chrono species thing where it's one evolving directly into the other. And usually you need a way more complete fossil record than we have for dinosaurs in, in order to show that kind of thing. Even with Homo sapiens, our fossil record is very recent, obviously, mm -hmm. and we still struggle to see exactly where the different pieces fit in terms of what evolved into what yeah. and which things were just evolutionary dead ends that happened to look similar. We still hear about new groups of human-like species. Yeah, hominids. Hominids, yeah. For sure. Yeah, so with dinosaurs, it is very hard to tell, but like you said, sometimes it has been proposed in the past by looking, say, at stratigraphic layers where people will say, well, this one's always in an older layer than this one, and therefore we think it's a different species or possibly even that it evolved into another. That's, I would say, more the tact that this paper is taking, is looking for a subtle difference that occurred over time and naming a new species based on that change. Mm -hmm. But this isn't even the first time someone has written a paper assigning another species to Tyrannosaurus. For example, Tarbosaurus batar oh, has yep. been called Tyrannosaurus batar on and off ever since its discovery in 1955, including by the original author. So that can get confusing. It can, but it's actually one of the most helpful times to use T, because then if you say T batar, it could be Tyrannosaurus, it could be Tarbosaurus. <laughs> oh, I see, yeah. It doesn't way. matter. Yeah. But that is one of the reasons people don't like using T-Rex, because it's a little bit vague. Mm -hmm. It leaves off the, the genus when there is a little bit of specificity required there. So now, we don't have a great record of most dinosaurs. So like I said, doing the chrono species strategy is really hard to do. But we do have over 100 specimens of T-Rex, according to that car paper, although far fewer have complete remains or are available for study. Right, because they're in private collections. Yeah, or they're just, you know, they found a couple bones, so oh, it's yeah. hard to compare. Too fragmentary. Yeah. So this study looked at 38 specimens, which is a good number, but only 27 of them have femurs, and even fewer have a complete skull. So now jumping into what the paper is proposing, they are proposing two new holotypes for these species, but I'm going to start with the original Tyrannosaurus rex holotype, just for completeness. Mm -hmm. So Tyrannosaurus rex, the holotype is CM9380. It doesn't have a nickname. It's just the Tyrannosaurus rex. I guess when you're the holotype, you don't need a nickname because well, it's the original. Sometimes holotypes <laughs> do have nicknames, but when you're the T-Rex, yeah. yeah, why would you? It was just T-Rex. That's all anyone needed to call it. Previously, it was known as AMNH 973, but it moved to the Carnegie Museum a while ago. Yes. And we actually... One of our patrons and listeners, Taylor McCoy, wrote us an excellent article. It's on our blog called The Original T-Rex, which explains a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's inodino.com slash the original T-Rex with hyphens in between everything, including yep. T and Rex. And it also includes a great picture of the dentary or lower jaw 
of the T-Rex holotype with seven large erupted teeth and several more tooth positions if you want to see. We talk a little bit about the dentary of these animals or lower jaw. So the T-Rex holotype was found by Barnum Brown in 1902 and it includes a partial skull. It's missing the tip of the snout and much of the back of the head, but it's got a good dentary. From the body, it has several vertebrae and ribs, most of the hips, much of the legs and upper foot, and it's tiny humerus <laughs> for its upper arm. Mm -hmm. So we actually knew about the tiny arms of T-Rex from the very beginning. We didn't have the hand in the beginning, but we did have that tiny upper arm, although- A tiny is relative too. Relative to its body, it is yeah. very tiny, yes. Compared to our humerus, it's pretty similar, but although much more robust. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's more like our femur, actually. But because it's so much smaller and like such a weird scale difference from the rest of the body, in the beginning, people assumed this might be from a different animal, even though it was found right next to it. It just, that seemed like the most plausible explanation at the time. And I agree. Like mm -hmm. you find one humerus next to this huge animal that's tiny. <laughs> of course, you're going to be like, what is up What's with that? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't take too long for us to figure out that that was, in fact, its humerus. The most recent reconstruction of the T-Rex holotype puts it at about 12 meters or 39 feet long and weighing about nine tons, plus or minus a few tons, because just how much meat was hanging off a T-Rex is hotly debated and how big the air sacs were as well, which can make a really big difference in its body weight. The T-Imperator holotype is Sue. Oh, okay. <laughs> Probably the most famous T-Rex of all time. See, there's a holotype with a nickname. It is, yes. But it's not, it didn't start out as yeah. a holotype. That's true. So Sue was originally found by Sue Hendrickson in 1990. It's on display at the Field Museum in Chicago. I probably don't need to say all these details, but it is one of the largest and most complete Tyrannosaurus finds of all time at about 85 to 90% complete, depending on if you're talking about the number of bones or the weight of bone that you have. It's mm -hmm. a little more complete if you go by mass because we've got more of the big bones. It includes all of the bones that we found in the T-Rex holotype, plus a foot, most of an arm, the gastralia, wishbone, and a nearly complete tail, among other bones. So it is truly a remarkable specimen, which is why it created such a huge controversy and legal battle over it and all that stuff. Of course, it also has a nearly complete skull, although it's really badly distorted. It's one of the worst looking complete T-Rex skulls there is. The skull is actually mounted separately from the skeleton at the Field Museum. It's sort of in a glass case off in the corner. So the one that you see on the mount is not even a replica, but an estimate of how it would have looked before being distorted. Oh, I see. So if you're just looking at a mount, the mount of Sue that everybody thinks of, its head didn't look like that when it came out of the ground. Mm -hmm. It's pretty smashed. Sue has been noted for being particularly robust in the past. Estimates put it at about one foot longer and probably a little bit heavier than the T-Rex holotype. <laughs> Sue's also, we talk a lot about Sue and Sue's pathologies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it had a tough life. I think it had an injury in its arm, among many other places. Holes in the skull, which have been debated. Yeah, so it's a it's a very well-studied T-Rex. Since it's so complete, too, people often use it as their model when they're looking at things like how T-Rex might have walked when mm -hmm. they're simulating it with muscle on it. Sue's so complete, it's even got its own Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> 
So according to these authors, Sue is no longer a T-Rex, but instead a T-Imperator. Okay. And the holotype of T-Imperator. So the emperor. Yeah, which I guess is above king. (laughs) Maybe because Sue is the more robust one. Yes, I think so. The T-Regina holotype is Wankelrex, also known as MOR555. Is that the nation's T-Rex? It is. But first, it was found by Kathy Wankel in 1988, and a replica is, or maybe was, on display at the Museum of the Rockies. I'm not sure if they took down the replica when it got moved over to the Smithsonian and became the nation's T-Rex. But they do also have a bronze replica outside the museum, which I'm pretty sure is still there. Oh, yeah. We took a picture of that one. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Since Wankel Rex was found on federal land, it's owned by the Corps of Engineers who helped excavate it. And like you said, in 2019, it moved over from the MOR collections to a display at the Smithsonian Institute where it's posed eating a triceratops. Oh, yeah. Poor Hatcher. Yeah. (laughs) And got that new nickname, the nation's T-Rex. The nation's T-Rex is eating Hatcher. Yeah. (laughs) I'm probably going to keep calling it Wankel Rex just because it's a lot shorter to say than the nation's T-Rex. You could also say MOR555. I could. I'm not sure. I wonder if it changed its collection name like how the t-rex oh, holotype did i yeah. don't think so though wankel rex is about 46 percent complete it includes the skull and the first ever complete arm that was found it's estimated to be about one foot shorter than the t-rex holotype and two feet shorter than two and was likely the lightest it had thinner leg bones and things like that so the queen tyrannosaurus is the smallest yeah exactly so In summary, Wankel Rex, a.k.a. Tyrannosaurus Regina, in Washington, D.C., is the smallest and the queen, which is a little bit disappointing because in Birds of Prey, females are typically larger than the males. Mm. And that's even been proposed for Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have said Sue might have been a female because it was bigger and there might be a sexual dimorphism thing that was causing some T-Rex to be larger than others. Although, really, when you look at them, if there's only two feet in difference between the smallest and the biggest... Right. It's not that big of a difference. It isn't, considering there's almost a foot difference between the two of us. Yeah. And it's a much larger percentage of our height (laughs) versus the length (laughs) of foot tacked onto 39 feet versus a foot tacked onto 5 feet. It's like, you know, 20% versus 3%, basically. Do they even notice? I don't know. Would they have even noticed? Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) So, yeah. Tyrannosaurus regina is the smallest and lightest, Wankel rex. The medium length and weight is the Tyrannosaurus rex holotype in Pittsburgh, and the longest and heaviest is Sue, also known as Tyrannosaurus imperator in Chicago. All in museums in the U.S. that you can visit. Yep. All over the place. Well, I guess nothing west of the Mississippi, Mm. all east of the Mississippi, even though they were all found west of the Mississippi. Hmm. So the T-Rex holotype and Wankel Rex were both found in Montana, whereas Sue was found in South Dakota. All three are from the late Maastrichtian, or the last two million years of the Mesozoic. However, the authors propose that Tyrannosaurus Imperator, the largest, was actually the earlier of the three. Mm -hmm. So they propose that Tyrannosaurus Imperator evolved first and was larger based on the conditions of the environment, and then T-Rex and T-Regina would have evolved later from T-Imperator or from similar species. However, 
They do overlap in stratigraphy, so they also coexisted for at least a period of time, which isn't that uncommon for multiple species of a genus to coexist, mm -hmm. but it does show that it wasn't an anagenesis situation like you were talking about has been proposed with Triceratops, for example, right. and Taurosaurus. Another controversy. Yeah. Technically speaking, there are two main differences in morphology of the bones themselves, in addition to that difference, or at least correlation in age. The primary difference is how robust the specimen is, like I was talking about the weight estimates, which really is talking about the circumference divided by the length of the femur. That's the main way they did it, although they did include other bones too to try to estimate robustness. And the bones weren't always consistent, so they came up with estimates about how just how robust one tyrannosaur would be from all the bones they could use to analyze it. When you look at the chart of length versus circumference of these femora, what you see is that it's just a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> it might be more spread out even than you see in other dinosaurs that lived over a fairly long time period in different places. Because of that, they're saying, okay, well, this probably means that there's more than one species. And when they split it apart into three groups, the data does clump together marginally better. It's not really that much better. So it's kind of like with the Ornithoscolida debate. Yeah, but Ornithoscolida is basically the same. Mm. <laughs> like the statistically, there isn't that much of a difference between Ornithoscolida and Saurischia Ornithischia, whereas in this case, it is actually a little bit better. But that's sort of expected from a, it's, as a statistical analysis. Whenever you have a large data set and then you subdivide it based on the data itself, of course, the subdivided groups are going to correlate better together because that's how you're choosing the groups. Mm. So by definition, it's going to correlate better. So it's not a particularly impressive improvement considering how fewer data points there are in the regression after you split them into groups. They did include another factor, though, in addition to how robust the specimens are. That's how many smaller teeth there are in the front of the lower jaw. Hmm. So T. imperator has two pairs of teeth at the front of its lower jaw that are on the smaller side, and T. regina and T. rex have one pair of teeth at the front of the lower jaw that are on the smaller side. But smaller is a little bit of a loose adjective here because it's hard to define exactly what counts as smaller, and so that too was kind of tricky. Gregory Paul, the lead author, said he wanted to bring the issue of T-Rex as a potential wastebasket taxon to people's attention. He points out that there is more variability in T-Rex specimens than other large theropods, like I said. However, one of the comparisons is to 14 Allosaurus specimens from the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry, and we would expect a group living in the same time in the exact same ecosystem to be less varied than individuals of T-Rex, which were spanning thousands of miles apart and hundreds of thousands of years in time. Mm, so I see. It's not too surprising, but he did include other analyses with other large theropods. And in general, other scientists in the past have recognized that T-Rex does seem to have quite a bit of variability, which is why they've talked about things like maybe Sue or T. imperator, if you prefer, was a female and then the other ones might have been male mm -hmm. to sort of make up for this difference that we see in their body types. I do also really appreciate challenging the status quo. Yeah, it's good. It's at the very least, it's sparked conversation. It has, definitely. 
The paper was peer-reviewed. Evolutionary biology isn't just a magazine, as some internet trolls have claimed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is a peer-reviewed publication. But the publisher does describe the journal as, quote, a forum for broad syntheses, in-depth treatment, and controversial ideas in evolutionary biology, end quote. They knew it was going to be a controversial paper when they decided to publish it. Exactly. And they were looking for something controversial. But like you said, controversy is very useful to get people thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And it was peer-reviewed, so it's not just like a random thought somebody had wrote down and published. I might have started that way, and then they went in and they did the science and work and everything. Yeah, I think Gregory Paul said he originally thought about this looking at John Scanella's work with Triceratops at Mm -hmm. SVP like a decade ago Mm -hmm. and the variability there and thinking about T-Rex has a lot of variability too. Maybe there's some connection. The authors and reviewers are all well-respected paleontologists too. I just want to say all this because I'm going to get into a lot of the criticisms of the paper Mm -hmm. and I want people to know that it is real science. It's not just some crazy theory somebody came up with. It's not just a headline. Yes. So a lot of paleontologists have been skeptical of the results of the paper, including the usual T-Rex experts, but also several who work on other dinosaurs. I think that's to be expected for something like this. Yes. So Thomas Carr said, quote, it's just shades of gray and shapes in clouds, Mm. end quote. He's often pretty harsh with his criticism in general, if you've been following Nanotyrannus. Strangely, he's also listed in the acknowledgments as a reviewer. Okay, so he knew ahead of time what was coming. Yes, and I do have to agree with the lack of specificity defining the species. So the definitions are actually at the very end of the paper, the definitions of the species, the section called systematic paleontology. It's actually after the conclusions, and the descriptions all say for the the three species, Rex, Imperator, and Regina, generally robust or generally gracile, and then a statement about the teeth beginning with usually. So a little bit vague. Very vague. And that also means there aren't any autapomorphies of any of the species to distinguish them from one another. Well, then that definitely draws some skepticism. Yes, absolutely. There's disagreement about how many unique features or autapomorphies a species needs. Sometimes they don't have any, and it's just a combination of features, or sometimes you call them a mosaic of features seen in other species. But you definitely need at least one consistent feature. And in this case, they're all sort of correlations. So it, it rubs a lot of people, including me, the wrong way. Actually, I didn't notice at first that the systematic paleontology section wasn't in the normal place until I got to the conclusions and saw conclusions and systematic paleontology. Mm. And I went, wait, what? Why is this in the conclusions? You don't do that in the conclusions. You do it way earlier when you're establishing the species. So I found that to be very strange. Phil Curry is also a reviewer. He was originally a co-author, but withdrew after having concerns about how controversial the paper would be. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He said, like, I'm pretty conservative. I just didn't want to really be that involved. So he may not have agreed with all of the conclusions. We're not really sure. But he did say that he agrees that you can see changes in Tyrannosaurus over time. Mm -hmm. So sort of going back to that chrono species idea, whether or not there's enough there to draw a line is up for debate. Mm -hmm. But you do see a difference, especially in the reduction of teeth. So T. Imperator was the earlier one with the two pairs of teeth pretty consistently. And later on in Tyrannosaurus, you see fewer small teeth in the front of the jaws, and they might get a little bit smaller overall as well. It makes sense. Tyrannosaurus was around for a pretty long 
period of time. Yes. Things change. They do, yeah. And there's so much individual variation, too, that ecosystems 100,000 years or a million years apart very well could have different pressures that cause the dinosaurs to look slightly different, even Mm -hmm. if they are in the same species. Scott Persons, who's listed second of the three authors, who also studied under Phil Curry, said he wouldn't be surprised if the species definitions are incorrect, but, quote, what I am confident about is that there's got to be more than one species of Tyrannosaurus, end Uh, quote. Okay. So he is inviting more debate, more science into the controversy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And Gregory Paul, too, has said he's not super confident in the species themselves, but he didn't want to publish all the research he did on the differences between different Tyrannosaur specimens Mm -hmm. and then have somebody else swoop in and name it. It's like, I want the glory if I'm going to go through all the work, basically. He did come up with some very good names. Yes, he did. It's possible to explain all the differences between T. rex, T. imperator, and T. regina by individual variation, however, and in general, dinosaurs seem to have a lot of individual variation. We've talked about this with animals like Coelophysis, where they have all sorts of different variation within the one species, so it wouldn't be too surprising if they were all the same species. But again, it could be more than one species too. The most surprising comment to me was that Tom Holtz said, if T. imperador is a distinct species, it might be an adult nanotyrannus. Ooh, bringing another <laughs> debate into it. Yeah, because this difference in teeth is one of the defining differences between nanotyrannus, but a lot of people say, well, it just changed as the dinosaur got bigger. Mm-hmm. But if it didn't change as it got bigger, if you have an adult nanotyrannus, it's likely T. imperador, which would make T. imperador either T. lancensis, Tyrannosaurus lancensis, because mm-hmm. it's currently named Nanotyrannus lancensis if they get lumped, or you'd just stick with Nanotyrannus lancensis if it's different enough to be its own genus. Interesting. But that would eliminate T. imperator right off the gate mm-hmm. as not— Because it was named too late. Yes. A lot of critics have pointed out that the authors couldn't determine the species of several specimens they had. Carr said they couldn't assign species to four, quote, perfect skulls, and, quote, they should be able to tell species apart if they have perfect skulls and they can't do it, end quote. Hmm, okay. They did manage to categorize 26 of the 38 specimens into the three species, which is 68% of the Tyrannosaurus individuals they studied. It's not a great selection of them. I'm not sure why, considering the skulls should have most of the information. It might have to do with not having enough limb elements to determine how robust they are. Mm -hmm. But I, in general, don't think that the names are going to change in the wider public. And they're certainly not going to change in at least one museum anytime soon. Sue? Yeah, exactly. Jigme O'Connor is the curator of the dinosaur collection at the Field Museum. And she said that she wasn't planning on changing the signs for now and that the new species probably won't hold up to scrutiny. Gregory Paul has responded to probably every criticism anyone has written anywhere on the internet, (laughs) usually pretty defensively. He started one thread on the dinosaur mailing list with, quote, I am getting increasingly ticked off about the overreaction of what I am now calling the T-Rex cult, Uh, end quote. I remember that one. Which is just a little uncalled for, in my opinion. The main complaint seems to be that his work is being held to a harsher standard than other dinosaur research because it's T-Rex, and more or less there are a bunch of T-Rex fanboys who don't like what he's doing. I agree that it's being held to a higher standard. However, I think it's completely appropriate. 
T. rex is one of the most studied dinosaurs, so changing its taxonomy has a much higher impact on the field of paleontology than other dinosaurs. And on top of that, there are a lot of really well-informed researchers on all the details of the anatomy who can quickly assess the research and disagree with it without having to do a whole in-depth study of their own. Plus, as Carl Sagan said, quote, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And this is definitely an extraordinary claim, changing Sue and the nation's T-Rex to different species Mm -hmm. than T-Rex. But maybe there will be later papers talking about more stuff. Who knows? Yes, I'm sure someone will respond to this. I'm guessing it's not going to be in favor of T. Imperator and T. Regina, though. But I want to end on a happy note. I think the authors are right that the odds that all T-Rex specimens are from the same species is vanishingly small. Like, in general, when you've got hundreds of fossils over millions of years, the odds of that are pretty low. It's unlikely for almost all dinosaurs, which are found in many different quarries across wide distances. But the problem is determining which specimens are from different species Mm -hmm. is very difficult. Where you draw the line, too, like you were saying. Yeah. Even if we did all agree on where to draw a line, though, it's possible that we'll never be able to determine Tyrannosaurus species with more granularity than just Rex because we can't observe them. We can't see which ones could breed with each other. We can't test their DNA. We can't do all the things you like to do to define a species. So more specimens might help. More histology might help to check for the age of these proposed individuals. It's going to be really difficult to nail this down in the end. But I do appreciate that there are a lot of differences and that they've now been quantified in pretty specific terms between the different Tyrannosaurus specimens. Mm -hmm. That definitely helps with future studies. Yes. So it's possible in the future we'll have either these names having a resurgence Mm -hmm. (laughs) or new Tyrannosaurus names coming out with different specific autapomorphies than more general terms that they used in this paper. Yeah. And then, like you mentioned at the beginning, I like that papers like these come out because they spark discussion And then you've got a lot of people talking about dinosaurs again, including people who don't normally talk about dinosaurs. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) My little bias there. (laughs) So now before we get into our next two dinosaurs, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. 
So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, as promised, we're getting into our other dinosaur news, which includes two new dinosaurs, starting with the new alvarosaurid theropod dinosaur, from the Upper Cretaceous of Gobi Desert, Mongolia. That's the name of the paper. <laughs> it's about the new alvarosaur called Ondonguraville alphanovi. And it was published about in Cretaceous Research by Alexander Avieranov and Alexei Lopatin. Ondonguraville is specifically a parvicursorine, and that's the group that includes alvarosaurus and mononychus. Those are the winners. <laughs> Those are probably some of the better known ones, so you get an idea of what it might have looked like. Ondo Guriville lived in the Upper Cretaceous in the Campanian in what is now Mongolia. It was found in the Barangoyat Formation at the Nemec locality. The paper said, quote, The alvarosaurids are best known from the Upper Cretaceous of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and northern China, although they are among the rarest theropod dinosaurs there. So the holotype of Ondo Guriville is fragmentary, but it's one of the most complete alvarosaurus specimens known from the Gobi Desert. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a partial skeleton. It includes vertebrae, forelimb, pelvic, and hindlimb bones. And the metacarpal 2 and 3 in the hands, they're fused, and metacarpal number 4 is separated, hmm. which is one of the things that makes it unique. Cool. Now, based on the forelimbs, Ondonguriville is most similar to Mononychus, but the forelimbs of Shishianychus and Albinychus are unknown. So it's a little hard to compare. Did they find any claws of Ondonguriville? Yes, but it doesn't look like they know exactly where it goes. Oh, just like associated claws, not in situ articulated. Yeah, I think so. But like its relatives... Ondoguriville had short arms, a, quote, functionally monodactyl manis, basically one functioning <laughs> finger on each hand. Yeah, the chest claws. <laughs> Actually, if it's like its relatives, then it's had the one large claw and the enlarged second finger. And it had long, slender legs, which would have been good for running. It also had a lightly built skull with large eyes and not many teeth or reduced dentition. And it's different from other alvarosaurs because those metatarsals 2 and 4 are fused over two-thirds of their length. Those are the bones in the foot. And you don't see this in other alvarosaurs. The genus name, Ondonguriville, means egg lizard, and that comes from the Mongolian words for egg and lizard. <laughs> Is it because of the, the chest-bumping eggs-to-eat-them hypothesis? That is what somebody on the dinosaur mailing list said. 
because there's actually no mention of eggs in the paper. <laughs> so it, it does seem likely it's based on this hypothesis of Cheopanicus that derived alvarosaurs ate eggs and pierced the shells with their claws. Yeah, I think Cheopanicus was also Mongolian, right? That one came from the Chiopa Formation of southern China. Oh, that's pretty far away, actually. Yeah. And we talk about that discovery in episode 200. And the species name, Alifanovi, is named in honor of Vladimir Alifanov, who found the dinosaur in 1999. So there you have it. New Alvarosaur. I love Alvarosaurs. Yeah. They're some of my favorites. Why did they just have the one claw? On each arm. <laughs> yeah. <on laughs> two, <sure>. two total. <laughs> I think digging for termites is probably the answer. Although I would love it if it was because they were going after eggs. I would love that too. Just seems a little unlikely. Yeah, you never know. Our next new dinosaur is a hadrosaur from the late Cretaceous in northern Patagonia. This dinosaur was published about in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology by Sebastian Rosadia and others. I bet they have a good systematic paleontology section. Not stuck in the conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your criteria, then yes. <laughs> it's just earlier in the paper, yes. This new dinosaur is Columa Pusora Machai. It was a hadrosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in the Campanian Maastrichtian in what is now northwest Patagonia in the Allen Formation. The genus name, Columa Pusora, means red earth in Mapudungan, and the species name refers to the shaman of the Mapuche people. It's one of the most complete hadrosaurids known from South America. Now, lots of hadrosaurs have been found in Europe, Asia, North America, but not as many have been found in the southern continents. The ones who have been found in the southern continents have mostly been found in South America. But a lot of those specimens are fragmentary. Now, it could be that there was a dispersal event at the end of the Cretaceous from North to South America. <laughs> it's sort of like what happened when Panama connected. Mm -hmm. So this hadrosaur, they found the skull and skeletal fossils from subadult and adult specimens. The holotype was found near the bones of a titanosaur. And the holotype includes a partial skull, part of the rib, part of the pelvis, part of the tail. The skull bones are well-preserved, but there's some broken bits and eroded surfaces, probably based on how the fossils got transported at some point during fossilization. Mm. There's paratypes from multiple individuals that were found about 23 meters from the holotype, and that includes parts of the tail, an incomplete right lower jaw, vertebrae, parts of the pelvis, and part of the foot. That's nice. We've got partial skull and partial jaw. Those are some of the more important ones when you're looking at hadrosaurs. And I don't think this is an open access article, but they do have a nice image that shows you exactly which bones in the body that they found. Oh, cool. It does look fragmentary, but you still get a good idea of the shape. Enough puzzle pieces to put together yeah. an idea of the picture. <laughs> They've even colored it in so you know which comes from the holotype and which from the paratypes. Oh, cool. Is it mostly from the holotype? I think it's more from the paratype, but it's, it's kind of even. Like the holotype have the parts in the skull oh okay yeah that's probably why they picked it as the holotype then mm -hmm. or that they came together whereas the paratype might be a little more because you said there are multiple specimens so you've got to pick one yeah. <laughs> the more complete one so they 3d scanned all the bones and they estimated kaluma pusara to be about 26 to 29 and a half feet or eight to nine meters long 
It had some unique features, such as having a low upper jawbone, the maxilla, compared to the lower jawbone, the dentary. So another way to put that is it has a deep jaw on the bottom compared to the top with the palate. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the, the image. The dental battery in the lower jaw, in the dentary, has 35 alveoli, those bony sockets for the root of the tooth. Two dentaries were found, and one was almost 70% larger than the other, possibly because it's from an individual that's older than the other one. The upper jaw on the maxilla has 36 teeth still in place, and like other hadrosaurs, it had at least two functional teeth in each alveolus in the maxillary. There was a bonus find in this paper. They do mention it in the abstract, but for some reason that went over my head until I read the whole paper and I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is about another dinosaur, too. (laughs) So they proposed a new genus name for, quote, Critosaurus, Australis. They found teeth and fossils that overlap with other hadrosaur specimens from South America. And the author said, quote, this new evidence allows us to recognize that Cicernosaurus corneri, Bonapartosaurus rionegrensis, and Critosaurus australis are valid taxa, end quote. Oh, Interesting. I didn't realize anyone was questioning them, but I don't think I'd heard about Cicernosaurus until right now. So, Well, that's not true. That was in our Hadrosaur Hootenanny episode oh, 350. But there were like 50 plus Hadrosaurs we went over, so yeah. I can understand how you forget that one. Yes. <laughs> the author said that Critosaurus, which they put in quotes, Australis, is different from other South American dinosaurs and from Critosaurus in North America. So that's why they came up with this new name. And they renamed it to Qualosaurus australis, which means duck lizard. <laughs> in Mapudungan again? Yes. Huala means duck in Mapudungan. <laughs> and the species name means southern in Latin because it was found in southern Argentina, but also they're keeping the species name. For some fun fact, I should figure out how many hadrosaurs have been named after ducks and how many languages <laughs> that's happened. <laughs> I feel that would like it happens funny. a lot. So Qualosaurus lived in the late Cretaceous, the late Campanian to Maastrichtian, and what is now Patagonia in the Los Alamitos Formation. It was originally named in 1984 as Critosaurus and had been considered to be a synonym of Cicernosaurus, which has also been found in the Los Alamitos Formation. And it was considered to be a synonym based on taphonomic deformation. Also, the holotype of Cicernosaurus was thought to be a subadult or juvenile, and Critosaurus Australis specimens were thought to be adults. Numerous specimens of Critosaurus australis, or Qualosaurus, have been found over the years, and they found that the postorbital, the back of the eye socket, had a, quote, finger-like medially projecting process, end quote, and the ilium, the upper part of the pelvis, had a conspicuous groove. Look at those uh, tapomorphies. Yep. So this new discovery and analysis shows that there was more hadrosaur diversity in Patagonia than previously thought. And the author said, quote, These records, far from Laurasia, show that hadrosaurs were not just vagrants and scarcely present, but instead were members of an independent radiation that took place in this region of Gondwana and formed a key part of the latest Cretaceous faunas of Patagonia, end quote. Cool. Yeah, I definitely always think of hadrosaurs as a Laurasian group and not a Gondwanan group, yeah. for sure. You and many other people. But there are some pretty famous ones from Gondwana. Like you got Mudaburosaurus. Yeah. So you got a bonus dinosaur in there. We, I guess we've technically talked about five new dinosaur species then. 
That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, four new species and one new genus, or four new species and two new genus? Three genera. That's hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have one other quick dinosaur news item? This one is on Park Avenue in New York. You can see a T-Rex as part of art in the parks. It's a new installation in their open art gallery. And you can see Rexer the T-Rex, which is bright red with yellow teeth, eyes, and claws. You can see it on Park Avenue South between 34th and 38th Street. And when I was looking at pictures, Garrett, there was a lion that looked familiar, which must be part of this open-air gallery, and we didn't realize, because I remember we passed by it a couple times, we're wondering, what is this lion sculpture doing? Hmm. No, you know, it's art in the parks. I guess so. I think I saw a picture of that thing. It looks crazy. Red with yellow teeth is not a subtle look. Well, you want to catch people's <laughs> attention. It's hard to do in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and momentarily, we're going to get on to our Dinosaur of the Day, Anodontosaurus, But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Anodontosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King and Crow via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was an ankylosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. It looked like other ankylosaurs, you know, it was low to the ground, it was on four legs, covered in armor, had a club tail. Ooh, ankylosaurid. Those are the best ankylosaurs. Yes, it is an ankylosaurid. So its body was covered in armor, and it had a wide, pointed tail club. What do you mean by pointed? Just the general shape. Like pointed towards the tip? I think it's more to do with the osteoderms on it that are pointed. This tail club, though, was wider than it was long. Oh, I see what you mean. More like a hammer than like a bat with the weight on it or something. Mm Mm-hmm. That's intense. <laughs> As most ankylosaurs are, <laughs> or maybe all. Now, being an ankylosaur, it was herbivorous. They also had small polygonal plates of bone behind the eye. Good for protection. Yeah. It was also herbivorous. There's two species, Anodontosaurus lami and Anodontosaurus inceptus. And the type species is Anodontosaurus lami. The fossils were found in 1916 by Sternberg, and then it was named in 1929 by Charles M. Sternberg. The holotype is a partially preserved skeleton that includes the skull and armor, including the first cervical half ring, but the skeleton was pretty badly crushed. The genus name Anodontosaurus means toothless lizard. That's based on the fact that this crushing compression of the skeleton made it lose its teeth 
and shift some round, flat elements from below the skull to the top of the lower jaw. So Sternberg thought that it had these large plates instead of teeth. Weird. Yes. And the species name is in honor of Lawrence Lamb, for the type species. In 1986, Coombs found one specimen of Anodontosaurus to be a juvenile, based on sacral ribs not being fused to vertebrae, though he considered Anodontosaurus to be Euoplocephalus. That specimen included ribs, vertebrae, right hind limb, feet, and other fragments. And back in 1971, Walter Coombs had said that there was only one type of ankylosaur during the Campanian in North America. Oh man, that's quite a claim. Yes, he synonymized Anodontosaurus, Dioplosaurus, and Scolosaurus with Euoplocephalus, but he didn't really explain why. He mentioned some differences in skull size and shape, but there was no skull known for Dioplosaurus or Scolosaurus. Then Victoria Arbor and others re-described Dioplosaurus and said that that was valid. That was in 2009. And in 2010, they said that Anodontosaurus was also distinct based on the tail club, skull ornamentation, and triangular knob osteoderms. So she reassigned all the ankylosaurine specimens from Horseshoe Canyon formation that were considered to be Euoplocephalus to Anodontosaurus based on them having these consistently similar tail club knots. So it suggested they were all from the same taxon. Mm. Three studies in 2013 also said that Anodontosaurus was valid, and Scolosaurus was also found to be valid. Victoria Arbor and Phil Curry also referred a specimen from Dinosaur Park formation to Anodontosaurus, which lived a few million years earlier than the other specimens. In 2018, Paul Pankowski made that specimen the holotype of the new species Anodontosaurus inceptus. Yeah, I can see a few million years apart. Mm-hmm. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Anodontosaurus include the Troodontid, Alberta venador, Ceratopsians, like Pachyrhinosaurus, Ornithomimids, like Struthiomimus and Ornithomimus, Hadrosaurs, like Edmontosaurus, Hippacrosaurus, Parkosaurus, Sorolophus, and the Tyrannosaur, Albertosaurus. It needed some good armor with all those big predators around. It did. And if you want to see more of Anodontosaurus, it's in the game Path of Titans. Seems like a really cool ankylosaur with a pointy tail club that's super wide. <laughs> I think you say that about all ankylosaurs. Probably. There aren't that many ankylosaurs, <laughs> especially ankylosaurids. And our fun fact of the day is that most dinosaur genera only have a single species, and there are several good reasons why. I was wondering about that. And then we end up just saying the genus name. Yes. Although it's funny, Anodontosaurus has two species. You're talking about a bunch of other dinosaurs that got synonymized, like Dioplosaurus lumping in all these other ankylosaurus and things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But typically, when a dinosaur is named, a new genus and species are selected for the new animal rather than associating it with an existing genus. For a little background, defining a species is really difficult. Like we said when we were talking about Tyrannosaurus, Rex, Regina, and Imperator, usually the group of organisms that can produce fertile offspring are the definition of a species, although it's evolved a little bit. In most cases, there's usually a pair of different sexes which reproduce to create new offspring, but some animals do have more than two sexes. There are also some species that produce asexually, so this definition doesn't work at all for them, which is why it isn't really the most modern scientific definition. Fortunately, though, there's never been asexual reproduction 
seen with any living archosaur, bird or crocodile. So you can probably rule it out for a non-avian dinosaur. Exactly. And so we think the definition of reproducing to create fertile offspring would be a good definition for dinosaurs if we could test them or observe them to see who they mated with and if they had fertile offspring. There is a big caveat to that, though, which is that hybrids sometimes form from animals mating. Many famous hybrids are sterile or not able to produce fertile offspring. For example, mules are a horse and a donkey mating, but mules cannot themselves mate. Birds in captivity and the wild, though, have bred between species, sometimes creating fertile offspring. Is this more evidence that birds are going to take over again? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's related. But it does. They can, they can do it all. They can. <laughs> it does make it really hard to determine bird species in some cases. For example, sometimes a hybrid animal gets established and it results in a brand new species. For example, the golden crowned mannequin is a hybrid of the snow capped mannequin and opal crowned mannequin. They probably hybridized about 180,000 years ago based on DNA evidence, and now they're just their own species. So how do you define a species with the three of those? Mm -hmm. If they can all breed with each other, they all look different and they all do different things, but they can breed and create a new species. It's very weird. So no definition of species is really thorough and covers all possible... Caveats? Yeah, exactly. An alternative definition of a species is animals that have a, quote, unique set of traits, which is basically what we use in paleontology. I'm looking for those autapomorphies, or at least that mosaic of features which we say are unique to that specific species. We know that animal species usually last for about 1 to 10 million years. Which is quite a range. It is. Fortunately for mammals and birds, the average is more like 1 to 3 million years. I usually just say 2 million years just because it's easier to say than 1 to 3. An average dinosaur species probably lasted about that same number of years because why wouldn't it? We can, And we can also kind of tell from the fossil record. But so far I've only been talking about species. When it comes to a genus, there are three useful criteria that I found that I think pretty well encapsulate what you want when you're defining a genus. They must be monophyletic, meaning a shared common ancestor. It's not an option. That is a must. <laughs> that common ancestor should be pretty close because it's the second lowest taxonomic rank in that kingdom phylum class order family genus species. Were you just thinking King Philip and his spaghetti? <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> the came over is the key for the class order. Mm. Those are the easiest ones to forget. And then the third thing you, you're looking for is that everything in the genus should have a lot in common. For example, an ecological niche or something where the, you'd want to group them together, that it's useful in some taxonomic way to say like this group of animals. Because really with genera, a lot of times what you're doing is talking about how a subset of animals interact with the environment and one another. My favorite example of a animal genus is Panthera a.k.a. the big cats. <laughs> Their common ancestor is about 6 million years ago, which is relatively recent. There also aren't that many species within Panthera. The type species, for the record, is Panthera pardus, also known as the leopard. And existing Panthera species include snow leopards, lions, tigers, and jaguars. <laughs> Not I bears. I half expecting you to say bears. <laughs> <laughs> so they pass those first two useful criteria. 
they're definitely monophyletic with a shared common ancestor, and that common ancestor is pretty close. They also fill a pretty similar ecological niche. All of them are big hypercarnivores, mostly nocturnal hunters, and all of them, except for the snow leopard, can roar. Interesting. Yeah. This final group was refined by comparing their DNA with other cats over the years, and it really solidified that this is the group of big cats. Because there are other bigger cats like cheetahs and pumas that do not fit within Panthera. They're just more distant relatives. And house cats are also off in their own world. They're not in Panthera. With dinosaurs, though, we can't properly test sharing a common ancestor, let alone a recent common ancestor, because we can't look at their genetics. Mm -hmm. So we just have to get a best guess. For example, if a scientist describes a new dinosaur species that's really similar to another species from what we know, they might decide to stick that species in an existing genus because they look really similar. However, if time passes and we find 10 more dinosaurs and an analysis of this new group of 12, the original two plus the 10 more, shows that the two species which were placed in the same genus actually have several species that fit in between them and those species are in different genera, now those two species are no longer monophyletic in their genera. So that species that was originally assigned to the existing genus, it's not the type species, so it doesn't stick with the genus, has to be named into a new genus since it's not monophyletic. The big advantage to having a single species per genus with dinosaurs is that when all dinosaurs have their own genus, we can really easily rework phylogenies without constantly having to rename things. Because then if there's ever a situation where you find a new dinosaur, like we do constantly, mm -hmm. and it fits in between two other species, and that one already has a genus name, we don't have to constantly mess with all these genus names and stuff. We can just draw a new family tree and move around the names. We don't have to do all this work of renaming things, which would be incredibly confusing because if you're researching these animals and it's had this genus associated with it for a long time and that genus name keeps changing, it becomes really difficult to communicate with other scientists about which animal you're working on. Then you have to go to specimen numbers and it just becomes a little unwieldy. The other two criteria besides that common ancestor also don't help us define dinosaur genera. We can't determine the distance back of a common ancestor because we don't have DNA or any other really useful way to do it. And we can't easily determine ecological niches either because we, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. You can see sometimes, oh, this one died in a swamp, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that it was there all the time. It just tells you where it was at the end. Yeah. And I guess we can sometimes determine common ancestors without DNA a little bit, but it's difficult, especially in the beginning. Sometimes we can be pretty certain that two species are very closely related. For example, with those Tyrannosaurus specimens, they obviously have way more in common than they have different. And if we have a lot of two very similar dinosaurs from the same time and place, they might be close enough to be described as different species in the same genus. But if they're really close together, they're in danger of being synonymized into the same species by later work. Or if they're a little bit too different, they're likely to get split off into separate genera later. Which has happened a lot. Yeah, like with Tyrannosaurus batar versus Tarbosaurus batar. And there's a million examples when it comes to paleontology. You just had one with that hadrosaur. Mm -hmm. They got split off from Critosaurus because it turned out to be different enough. One last reason that I really like having a unique genus for every species is that it makes science communication much easier. 
the general public refers to dinosaurs by their genus name. They don't usually include the species name. And some of the genera by themselves are really a mouthful. For example, Parasaurolophus is plenty amount of a mouthful without <laughs> adding Parasaurolophus walkeri and Parasaurolophus sirtocristatus, which is one of the species. That's 11 syllables, by the way. <laughs> you have to say that every time you're talking about a dinosaur. It's a little bit cumbersome. But it could make for a fun game. Like a tongue twister type game? Yeah. Yeah. So that, in general, is why we just stick them in their own genus, mostly for the phylogeny, so you can move things around without causing huge headaches. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. If you want even more dinosaur goodness, plus links to sources from this episode, then go to our website at inodino.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.